man approached a, a little league baseball game one afternoon. Saw a little guy in the dugout who was sitting there swinging his legs and had his glove in his lap, and he was watching the game, and the boy was sitting there, and he goes up, and he asked the little boy, he says, so what's the score, son? And the little boy said, 18 to nothing. We're behind. Boy, said the spectator, I bet you're really discouraged. The little boy said, why be discouraged? We haven't had our at-bat yet. <laughs> that little guy just wasn't going to give up, was he? Now, as long as there was another at-bat, there was hope. When you look at the book of Job, Job, it must have been hard for him to, to keep his integrity, to not charge God with wrong, to not give up. There is a passage in Job chapter 11 I want to focus on tonight and kind of talk about what surrounds it, but, but leave with it if we could. Job chapter 11, verses 16 through 18. It says, You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. I went ahead and underlined that one in my Bible. I just, I just love the sound of that. It really does. If you know anything about the book of Job, you know that this was pretty much at the end of a misguided, self-redeeming theology that a man named Zophar was attacking Job. And yet I find in those words something about not giving up. Something that when you're down 18 to nothing that keeps your discouragement at bay with the hope that I have one more at bat. Let me give you some ahas for it if I could. Tom Shepard does a good job of summarizing a chorus line of commentators when he says and writes, Zophar is the third of Job's friends to speak. Job has heard two points from his friends. From, first of all, Eliphaz, that man is sinful. From Bildad, God is just. Zophar now finishes with the third point. God punishes sin and really gives us less than we deserve for the sinfulness that fills our lives. He starts in chapter 11 by saying that Job talks too much. And what he says makes no sense in verses 1 through 4. He continues with an inductive conclusion that Job's sins must be really, really big because God holds back on what a sinner deserves in verses 5 and 6, especially at the end of 6. And I have a little theology spoiler there. That I don't know that God holds back what people deserve because I can't point to the flood or to Sodom and Gomorrah or to Jericho I can't point to those things and say that God holds back. So I don't know that Zophar is really you know, correct on that. So it leads me to the aha that says the problem, there's a problem with being sanctimonious, self-righteous. What I mean is this. There are those who speak with authority. I get that. They're confident. They come from a good place. You know, they're saying something that's worthwhile. But there are others who speak as if they are the authority. And I caution people who travel that path as if they are the authority on this matter. Reason being, first of all, because of the sin of presumption. The sin of presumption. Psalm 19 and verse 13 pleads, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Zophar seems to presume that he knows the thoughts of God. He's almost trying to speak for God himself there in verse 6. Knowing then, he says, that God has chosen to overlook some of your sin. How does Zophar know that? We are blessed to what God wants us to know through his Holy Spirit. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you'll turn over and read with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 is a comforting passage, even though it challenges us in many ways. It says, starting in verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. I'm tracking. Okay. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. In other, in other words, what God wants us to know, we know. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Be very careful when we think we know all the thoughts of God. We have what God wants us to know, and he is so much more merciful and forgiving than we are, especially when we look around us at people that we might think are unredeemable. God is more than willing and able and ready to touch lives that sometimes we wouldn't go near. The sin of presumption. Second of all, the sin of hopelessness. Zophar encapsulates the plight of Job by asking Job four questions in verses 7 and 8. Four questions trying to prove Job to be guilty. He asks him, first of all, in verse 7, can you search out the deep things of God? And then turns around and says, can you find the limits of the Almighty? And in verse 8 he says, does your understanding reach to the highest heaven? And then he concludes, does your understanding reach to the depths of Sheol or the place of death? And the answer is obviously no. And Zophar goes on to compare the stupidity of a man to a donkey's colt. I'll let you make the connection there about what he's saying. So instead of hope, Zophar pronounces Job's situation terminal. Since you can't do these things, and the answer is no, and since you seem to be acting like a donkey's colt about all of this, he says, so what's your situation? And Zophar says, you, you're, you're sick. We all need medicine. Verses 15 through 19. He says, Job, if you would take your medication, you would get well, basically. Later on, in Job, in Job chapter 13, 12 and 13, Job accuses his friends of being terrible physicians. We'll talk about that next time. But he so far continues by giving a warning. If you don't listen to me, he says, I'll tell you what is going to happen to you. In verse 20, but the sight of the wicked will fail, their way of escape will be cut off, and their only hope will be to die. If it were up to us, that would probably be our end as well. We can no more heal ourselves of the sin in our life than Job did. But thank God that we have the great physician, Jesus Christ, who in Luke 5, verse 31 and 32 says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Presumption. Hopelessness. So far doesn't offer Job anything to cure him. And then finally the sin of self-redeeming human doctrine. Self-redeeming human doctrine. In other words, we can, we can do this on our own. Jesus warned in Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. He said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So far has already considered Job guilty. 
and comes up with a formula so that Job can fix the situation. Watch what happens. He says 11 verse 10. We're going to go through verse 15, but I'm, I'll break it up and you follow me. He gives him three ifs. If you do this, step one, step two, step three, if you will. Three ifs. The steps to the formula for curing your, your situation of sin before God. First he says, verse 10, if God passes by and passes judgment, who can stop it? In other words, he has and you're here. You are a sinner. 11 verse 13, if you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. All right, here we go. We've got posture now. We've got, we've got repentance. Okay, we've got a posture. Verse 14, if you held on to sin, put it far away and let not, not injustice dwell in your tents and will not throw it away. He says, basically, you've got to, we've got to get your heart right. You've got to lift up your hands. You've got to prepare your heart. You've got to put away sin. He says, then, verse 15, here it is, then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. Or as one, one, one version puts it, you'll be able to face the world unashamed and keep a firm grip on life, guiltless and fearless. Sounds good, right? That's doable. Three steps and a, and a wham, right? Kind of. Notice who's missing in that whole thing. Anybody notice that? God. God's missing. Yeah. Yeah. God's missing. Um, you ever notice, you know, what it is, you know, basically that you can do? You can do it all. You don't need God. I really like Dana Child's observation here. Zophar probably looked at Job when he looked at himself, as people are often do. He saw that he was a success in life compared to Job's circum certain current circumstances. If Zophar lived today, he would probably be the person who would hand out the four spiritual laws by which to live, or the seven ways to financial success, or the five steps to a happy Christian home. Why? Because my home was a happy Christian home, and I'm a success, and you need to imitate what I do. I remember having a class when I was in college, and, uh, and there were these lists. I probably was, it was, what was that class called? Family... Families, married, what family, anyway, whatever. And I mean, there was there, every time you went to class, there were twelve lists. You know, the ten ways to take out the trash, and the, the four ways to tell your wife you love her, and the, the seven ways to propose. I don't know, you know, kind of thing. And there were all these lists. I've still got them somewhere. I've got all these lists. I thought, man, these will make great sermons until I realized there's no way you can do all these. You can't do this. It boils down to this. Love God and love each other. I'm just going to tell you, it's, it's pretty simple. Okay, right. I, Let me just boil it down. But the problem is, having the good fortune in life, if not understood as, what's a better word, the fortuosity, uh, the, the, the good fortune of just not having bad things happen, doesn't necessarily make you the expert. Just because it didn't happen to you doesn't mean that someone else in the same circumstances and they had the bad things happen doesn't mean they did something wrong, but they didn't do all the steps. And you will begin to defend your ways to success if you see yourself as the self-appointed expert, the presumptuous, self-redeeming um, expert. You're going to have to let go of defining life by your success. 
and also by defining life by your failure. We also need to let go of this terrible habit we have of getting into other people's business. Okay? That's why they used to call it the lumberyard. I haven't said that in a long time. Yeah. Lumberyard story. Yeah, because we used to have a guy say, don't you get my business. Yeah. Because we think we can fix them. You ever had somebody like that in your life? You know, you don't worry about that. If you'll just do this, 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 and this, it'll all go away. Or you're doing this, this, and this. That's why that happened. How many had that happen to you? Honestly, be honest, right? It's because you did this. If you would just admit that you're wrong, prepare your heart, let go of your sin, kind of thing, then this would happen, kind of thing, and you might face the world unashamed. Does that ever make you feel bad? You'd ever steal away your hope? See what I mean? It'll do that to you sometimes. Because you look at them and you think, what did I do wrong? Right? So, we need to stop that. Just because it hasn't happened to you doesn't make you an expert. Just because it did happen to you doesn't make you a failure. It just means some things happened in your life. Some of it we chose and our consequences of our behavior, I get it. Some of it's not. We must be able to listen and learn from others so that when we offer our help, we would offer what they need and not what we pride in ourselves. We would offer what they need and not what we pride in ourselves. Luke chapter 18. Fast becoming one of my favorite parables. Starting in verse 9, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood, prayed about himself. God, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, sanctimonious. Don't do that. Do this. Let me give you the takeaway. Going back to Job chapter 11, verse 16. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. Let me share with you the power of hope. Can I do that? Four things. And then I'll tell you how we can take that hope and put it in our pocket and take it out of here. Power of hope. David Murray's blog, and I adapted some of that, but it just it, he said it and I have to give him credit for it. He says, first of all, hope moves forward. Let me write that down. Hope moves forward. Okay? It produces action. When we hope for better days for the church, we serve the church. When we hope for the conversion of our children, we are motivated to share the gospel with them. When we hope for God's blessings on His Word, we listen to it much more avidly. Christian hope is a realistic expectation of 
and a joyful longing for the future good and glory based upon the reliable word of God. Hope moves forward. Second, hope is infectious. Hope is infectious. You can't, you, you can't not catch it when it's around. The more we long for the future, the less we will yearn for the past. Hope deletes regrets and underlines expectation. We inspire, we motivate others through the hope seen in us. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Why would anybody ask why there's hope in you? Obviously because you're living that hope. It becomes infectious. People want to know, what is it you have that I don't? Why is it you're different than I am? And this is not the time to kind of say, oh, here's the, you know, here's the way you do it. You, know, you, know, you just tell them about the hope that's in you because of the Christ who died for us. The gospel that changed us. The grace of God that guides us to heaven that is ahead of us. And through all the things that we've been through, we are humble because we keep moving forward. And as we keep moving forward, it's infectious. And then hope protects twice. Paul pictures hope as a protective helmet. In Ephesians 6, verse 17, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 8. Paul, well, you think about it. Any more than you would want to go into battle or a football game or whatever else without your helmet. You don't take it off until the battle is over. Reminding us that one of the greatest areas of vulnerability one of the greatest dangers for a Christian is our mind. Because it's there that the devil comes and he wants to work his little seeds of doubt and despair. He wants to discourage you. And all those things take place. They don't take place in your shoulders, do they? They don't take place in your shins. They don't take place in your toenails. They take place where? In your mind. You're overthinking it sometimes, Right? We need, to protect our, we need to protect ourselves with hope. Hope protects. It says there's another at bat coming. Hope purifies. Whatever persecution we experience in this world, the day is coming when we will not just be called the sons of God, we will be like the Son of God. We get tied to this whole world too much. We want to be whole here. You know, that's not promised us. We're not promised to be whole here. Either in body, soul, or spirit. We're promised that the completeness of a, of a Christian comes together when? At the resurrection. Okay. When Jesus comes to take us home. And when that happens, we will be like the Son of God. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-3. through 3. That's what inspires and motivates the apostle to persevere to the end, to persevere in holiness. And he says that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Hope purifies. It gets us ready. So what's the benefit from all that? How, what can I put in your pocket and leave, let you leave home with? Tonight? From the words of Zophar himself, three things. Like waters that have passed. You realize, I don't know if you knew this or not, in the catacombs during the great persecutions of the Christians in Rome, they used to bury the Christians underneath the city because they weren't allowed public burial because they were Christians and Rome wouldn't allow that to happen. But in the catacombs where they buried the Christians, they would often put symbols on the, on the, on the ends of the, uh, of the burial places to, uh, to tell people that you know, this was a Christian 
Okay, and then, and in, if you go into catacombs, I've read that there are 66 drawings. And you know what they drawings of? There aren't crosses. They aren't lambs. They aren't anchors. Anchors. Why would someone put an anchor on their persecuted grave place? Why would they put an anchor there? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Who is our hope? Jesus Christ. Where are we going? I'm not going in this world. I'm going for the next. Like waters that have passed, we have an anchor that keeps our soul. Secondly, darkness will be like the morning. Hope is our light at the end of the tunnel, if you will, and it's not a train coming, to say. Hope does not deny nor remove the reality of dark and painful experiences. However, it does shine and point out these things, these valleys, and points to the sunrise at the end of them. Psalm 16, verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you think, well, that's all well and good. Until you remember that that's part of the quote from Peter's sermon when he talks about Jesus in Acts chapter 2 where he will not abandon his body to the grave. Jesus speaking and saying basically, God, I still have hope. I am that hope. I embody that hope. I will be that hope for others. And finally, you searched and became secure. It's the literal translation. You searched and became secure. Hope is healing, in other words. Hope is healing. When you're sick, you find your way to the doctor, am I right? When you're lost, you find your way. Well, if, well guys have a problem with this. But you know, if you're lost, you find your way to somewhere, to somebody who knows where they're going. That kind of thing. Hope is healing. By definition, depression is a sense of hopelessness. The belief that things cannot and will not get better. When I believe there is a way out. When I believe that there are things that can be done to help. That hope is a huge step towards healing. Hebrews chapter 11, which follows after Hebrews chapter 5, makes very clear hope and faith are very closely tied together in the people who shine for God. The greatest believers are the greatest at living with hope. James Deloach tells the story. He said years ago he saw a picture of an old burned out mountain shack. Nothing was left. All that remained was the chimney. Charred debris of what had been the family's sole possession. Their home and the, and the hard scrabble mountains there. He said it was burned to the ground. In front of this destroyed home stood uh, an old grandfather looking man dressed only in his underclothes. His, his, his union all. And there was a little boy standing right beside him clutching a pair of patched overalls. It is evident the child was crying because the tears had streamed his face. 
Beneath the picture were the words which the artist, I think, felt the old man was speaking to the boy. They were simple words. Yet they presented a profound theology and philosophy of life. The words were this. Hush, child. God ain't dead. Hush, child. God ain't dead. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We need reminders, not formulas. We need word pictures that there is hope in this world. In the midst of all of life's troubles and failures, I don't need somebody in my business. I need somebody to draw me a word picture that tells me that all is not lost as long as God is, in, is, in, is alive that he is in control of his world. So far, he tried to take Job's hope. But in the middle of his words, there was a message. No matter how far behind you are, you don't have to be discouraged. Keep swinging your legs and waiting for it. Because you haven't had your turn it back yet. Keep swinging. Amen? God's invitation is ours tonight. We need to repent and be baptized if we need to repent and ask for prayer. We just need the help of our brothers and sisters. Would you come tonight and make your need known as together we stand and as we sing.